Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. I have some of the text on the insert. You can use your electronic version, or you can use a Pew Bible. Pew Bible, page 569, starts chapter 5. I will, Lord willing, while deep in thought, as Steve said, cover all these verses uh, in chapter 5. Isaiah 6 may be the glorious high point of the whole Old Testament. Certainly it's the high point of grace in the Old Testament, I would say. Isaiah 6 may be the high point of the Bible, apart from the cross itself, certainly in the top tier of passages that point us to the grace of God. That's Isaiah 6. But today we're on Isaiah 5. And before we can appreciate the great grace of God, we have to have Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5 comes as a low spot in describing the digression of God's people who had been shown God's grace in manifold ways for centuries. Uh, they come to a place of deliverance, a place of beautiful fertility in the land. I mean, they couldn't pick a better place on the globe to be located. Yet what happened with Israel is a lesson for us. It's a lesson about human nature. It's a lesson about God's justice, his righteousness, the way he responds, if you will, at least in a human sense, uh, to rebellion. There are many levels of application that we have from this historic account of what happened to God's people at this time in Isaiah's day. They were in the promised land for centuries, and over time they became more fearful of man than of God. They were more concerned with fitting in with the nations around them because they thought as they fit in with Assyria, who were the imperial powers of the day, that they would be safer that they would maintain their prosperity. They'd forgotten where their prosperity came from, and they thought they needed to be beholden to man and succumb to man's pressure, and so they looked more like Assyria than they did the people of God. Uh, they, ad they adopted the gods of Assyria, the wicked practices of Assyria, the lifestyles of Assyria, the, the philosophies and the religions of Assyria, because they felt it would keep them safe, and God brought judgment upon them for this. Because it is only the merciful hand of God that gives us stability or safety or security. And so the northern portion of Israel are assimilated into Assyria, could not be recognized any longer as a peculiar people to God. And Isaiah ministers as that is happening, as the northern kingdom, as it's called, is taken by Assyria. But the southern kingdom still has a certain sense of pride about where they are geographically, how they are by way of strength militarily, and how wise they are to make treaties that could keep them in better stead than the northern kingdom found themselves. And Isaiah is called to warn them about the same sin that caused the northern kingdom to fall. That independence from God and that fear of man would lead them into the same place. And so he warns them 
exactly about this. In the beginning of this deep plunge we take into the darkness and distress of God's people at this time, it happens in chapter 5, in the first verses, when the prophet Isaiah uses a parable. The biblical writers are fond of these illustrations, these metaphors. This parable is told in the first seven verses, here as I read Isaiah telling of an owner and a vineyard. Hear God's word. Let me sing for my beloved my, song, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Let's pray. Lord, we have come to a low point in Isaiah's prophecy, a low point for the people of God, for sure. It's low not just because of the history it relays, but due to the way that sin, in particular the sin of Judah here, resonates with us. We relate with the way that Judah was going. They were arrogant, thinking they were advanced and enlightened. They were in love with their stuff their safety, their security, and accumulating more stuff. Lord, it appears they were finding more security in the seeming might of man than in the sovereign power of your hand. But Lord, you will not be mocked. We see this as a repeated reality in your word and in time. Lord, please give us, your people today, a new reverence for you and a fixed hope in the only one who could bring light to the darkness and despair of our sin. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The history of God's people from the time that God called Abraham to the time of Isaiah, talking 1,500 years. 2,000 B.C., Abraham's time. 700 B.C., Isaiah's time. Centuries have gone by. In a, the same cycle repeats itself over and over again with the people called by God's name. God lavishes grace upon grace. He delivers them. He provides for them. He upholds them. He gives them pleasures. He gives them safety. He gives them an identity. And the response of God's people over and over and over is to reject him, is to turn from him. In fact, that's the theme of so many of the prophets. 
as I read the first seven verses, you notice there's a meter to it. It's, it's actually a song. He says it's a song. And it kind of reminds me of a country song to some degree. I was trying to think of my Johnny Cash library, and I thought, you know, there are lots of his songs where he starts out by all the things he does, and then only to get spurned by his, his, his love. That's exactly what Isaiah depicts. Isaiah sings it on behalf of God, but you'll notice in the verses that it transitions from Isaiah speaking it to just being God speaking. So Isaiah starts with a parable to tell the story of what was true of the owner of the vineyard, God, and the vineyard, Israel, the people of God. And as a preface, let's recognize that this is a failed history that we see throughout the Old Testament where God covenants by his grace and he calls the people to respond in obedience and they fail. They fail over and over and over again. And the picture is an important setup for us because there has to be one who is faithful and the only faithful Israelite who ever lives is the Messiah to come in Isaiah's day in Jesus who has come as we recognize he purpose, or perfectly fulfills all covenant obligations. Uh, he does everything that the Israelites cannot do. And that's why in Christ we have our refuge. In Christ we have all the benefits of the covenant. But watching this unfold in history helps us because it tells the truth about our tendency, our waywardness, what can happen with us as the people of God. It also speaks to nations. Um, God has not changed his look at sin, no matter what the nation is, and he has some rise and some fall on a regular basis all the time throughout history, and it's on the basis of how long will they mock his name and how long will he allow it to happen. So many lessons for us as we look at God's redeeming hand in this portion of history that is revealed for us. What we have before us is a picture of what happens when man rebels against God, especially the gracious hand of God. Sinful rebellion against God brings judgment, and it always, always, always brings darkness and distress. That's what happens when sinful rebellion occurs. Uh, now, to begin the message in chapter 5, Isaiah gives this parable. Let's look at the parable about a vineyard and bad fruit together, because it's very helpful and telling. Starting at verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my, my love song concerning his vineyard. So, there's poetic prose here in the text itself because it is a song. Maybe Isaiah sang this song over and over again. It's possible. You know, Isaiah is an accumulation of the high points of all the things the prophet Isaiah preached over a 50-year period. This could have been a song that had been sung over the years, maybe the, maybe the decades, to depict what was wrong with Israel. And the song starts, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. You can imagine that with guitar. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He's going to present a common picture that everybody would relate with. The place was, flo- the place was, was loaded with vineyards and wine, which is a sign of God's blessing and in, in his outpouring of provisions for them. So they would have understood this picture immediately of a vineyard. They were everywhere in Israel. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug, he dug it and cleared it of stones. So the owner of the vineyard picks out a beautiful place on a hillside where floods couldn't get it, where the sun could shine upon it, and it was fertile. The, the soil was good. He dug it and cleared it of stones. That means he cultivated that land so it could have things grown on it. He cleared it of 
stones and rocks and things that would cause it uh, to stagnate in its growth or not grow at all. He gave every chance for the vines to grow, fruitful, profitable, prosperous. And he planted it with choice vines. He didn't just pick uh, the leftover seeds. He planted the best kinds of vines that should have yielded the best kinds of grapes. The best quality of grape was planted. He spared no expense in setting up this vineyard. And in the vineyard, it says in the middle of verse 2 that he built a watchtower in the midst of it. Now, it would typically take a couple years for vines to grow and start yielding grapes that could be harvested. So he builds a watchtower, not a shack or a booth to keep enemies out, but a watchtower in the midst of this vineyard. We know from other parts of the passage that hedges were built, uh, kind of like a fence would work, in and amongst this vineyard as well. Great protection is provided for this vineyard. He hewed out a wine vat in it in verse 2, the last portion of verse 2. That means there had to be a wine press also. The vat is where the juices drained. So he has a wine-making operation right there in the vineyard with a watchtower. So the owner of the vineyard, who is God, has the vineyard who is Israel. He places the vineyard in a perfect place. He clears it perfectly for the vineyard to grow. He cultivates it. He plants it. He protects it. And he develops it. It provides for its every success. You know, up to this point in these two verses, the emphasis is on the owner of the vineyard. And the owner of the vineyard expected exactly what he should have expected from the vineyard. The commentator Young says, In calm, hopeful, and patient contemplation, the owner waited, anticipating as he watched the vines grow that they would yield a crop of good grapes. God delivers Israel from Egypt. And he plants them in the promised land. And he gives them every opportunity, every possible opportunity to succeed. It says in the last statement in verse 2, And he looked for it to yield grapes. But instead he got something altogether different. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Isaiah describes the fruit of the vineyard as wild grapes. Other translators call it rotten grapes or bitter fruit. I even read one translator who said we could call this stink fruit. I thought, what does that mean except for just this last week, I saw a tomato from the kitchen window that was growing in the garden, and I saw it, and it looked so good, and I let it get real red. I let them get real red when they're on the vine. I can't stand when I drive by a truck in the highway and I see green tomatoes headed to Hy-Vee because I know what they did. They picked them green, and they want to get them red. They're never as good that way. So I walked up on it, finally thinking it was perfect because I was going to make a sandwich out of it on Wednesday without anyone else knowing. <laughs> but as I got closer, I wasn't even four steps away, and I could, I could smell it. Something ate the backside of this thing, and it was rotten, and it stunk. When God looked to Israel for the fruit that they should have yielded, he got stink fruit instead. That's what he got. That's what, that was the fruit that Israel yielded. And I read in one place that I had researched, there is a common uh, label given to this kind of wild grape that grows in this part of the world. The ancient Arabs would call these wolf grapes. Not only are they not good to eat, they could make you sick if you eat them. Wolf grapes, it was a dangerous term to keep people away. Those are wolf grapes. Don't eat those wolf grapes. They'll hurt you. 
He'd looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wolf grapes instead. Here was Israel, sovereignly chosen and blessed by God, yet their fruit was rotten, unfit, even dangerous. The vineyard that God labored to plant, to cultivate, to protect, and to develop bore wolf grapes. Prophet Jeremiah speaks of this trait of Israel when he says, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? So God brings his case against Israel to the people of Israel. Look at verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, between myself and you. And whenever Isaiah talks about Jerusalem or Judah or the sons of Jacob or Israel, he's now talking uh, synonymously, using a bunch of different ways to describe the same thing, the people of Israel, God's people at this time. Verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? So I'm bringing the case to you. You're clearly giving wolf grapes when you should be giving good fruit. What more could I have done than I have already done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Verse 4. Be honest, people, he's saying. What more could I have done? Is it unreasonable for me to expect good fruit? Why did you reject me like this? Why did you fear man more than me? Why did you go after the pleasures of this temporal life more than the eternal life that I had promised you? Why are you yielding wolf grapes? And the owner's decision is clear as to what he will do with his vineyard in this parable. Verse 5. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. No more protection means the judgment of God falls upon it. No hedge or no walls. Others will come and devour the land. It will become a wasteland, literally. No more cultivation, no pruning, no hoeing. No more fruitfulness. It will become overrun with weeds. No more rain to nourish the growth. And in case there's any confusion at all about what Isaiah was painting as a picture, look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. When the owner of the vineyard, who is God, looked at the vineyard for a yield of good fruit, instead he got wolf grapes. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The wolf grapes were in the form of injustice and bloodshed instead of justice and peace. The wolf grapes of Israel were sin and rebellion instead of righteousness and God's glory. We have in this passage a warning against the wolf grapes. That is, the woes that are pronounced by the prophet Isaiah each align with some of the fruit that Israel was producing. The woes against the particular sins they were indulging in. Now you'll notice any of these sins could be true of any society or culture. We could recognize these. And we see how God's hand works against them. But see specifically what was happening among the people of God at this time. Uh, what wolf grapes they were yielding. Isaiah delivers a series of condemnations, six of them in particular. Starting at verse 8, we see this warning against sinful rebellion. Verse 8, woe to those 
who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. In other words, you who are accumulating for yourself more houses, more property, more stuff. That's what you're about. It's not that there's something wrong with having things. It's that their drive is for these things. They're living for this accumulation of things. And it's the very devotion to those things that made them compromise when God called them to stand against the nations who oppose God. They wanted to keep their stuff, and so they make treaties instead. I've got to have my stuff. And it's pictured in this greedy woe. The Lord of hosts, in verse 9, has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath. That's a unit of measurement. And a homer of seed shall yield but an epa. And what this is talking about, or an epa, this has to do with basically eight or nine gallons of total wine will be produced by ten acres of vineyard. That's hardly anything at all. The sin consisted in general multiplication of property, greed, even a monopoly. Perhaps it even involved an unjust acquisition of property. We could gather this by other things that are said. Covetousness was rampant. That was the wolf fruit. Coveting. John Chrysostom, a church father, preached saying, covetous men, if they could, would willingly take the sun from the poor if they had a chance. God would make the land a waste, the houses abandoned and desolate, and there wouldn't be enough grapes grown to produce even an ephah, eight gallons of wine. Verse 11, another woe. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them, they have a lyre and a harp, a tambourine, a flute, and wine at their feasts. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. See, they're getting drunk and they're getting high and they're getting stoned all day because they're celebrating themselves and their freedom and their pleasure. And they're not regarding the deeds of the Lord. They're not concerned with what the Lord has done for them to bring them to this place of great prosperity. There was nothing wrong with the wine. That's a sign of prosperity and blessing. The problem is worshiping it and being enslaved to it and thinking that's all life is about and becoming worshipers of this created thing in this lifestyle that it promoted. That's a wolf grape. That's fruit that is wicked. They do not regard the deeds of the Lord or seek, see the work of his hands. They're too drunk to recognize the sovereignty of God over all the affairs of mankind, including the micro-details of their life. Verse 18, another woe. Woe to those who draw iniquity with the cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with carts, cart ropes. Another great picture by the prophet here. We have a picture of people pulling a cartload of their sin. The people in their sinful rebellion, becoming slave to their sin and having to drag it around. Uh, they're, they're basically practical atheists at this point, no matter what religion outwardly they think, seem to be practicing. Uh, it says in verse 19, uh, it gives a, a statement of the people's mindset and how they might respond to God's charges. In verse 19, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. 
Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. In other words, they're taunting God. Okay, if you're going to do this judgment you're talking about, come on, do it quick. When are you going to do it? If you're going to judge, why haven't you done so by now? They don't believe he's really going to judge. They don't believe in God any longer. When we persist in sin, constantly persistent, it's ultimately a statement that we don't believe God will really call us to account. It's practical atheism that they were guilty of at this point. Verse 20 has another woe. These wolf grapes are revealed in these woes. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Let me warn you of an interpretive mistake that we could make here. We might read these woes and think them pointed only at Israel in Isaiah's day. It's true. It's pointed for them, specific. And there were specific outworkings of these woes. But why would God deal differently with persistent, willful, sinful rebellion today? It's one of the more timeless statements of Isaiah's prophecy Indeed, the whole Bible, when we come to this woe in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Israel made specific and careful compromises to secure their safety and their security with Assyria. They feared man more than God, So they allowed for Assyria's gods, Assyria's lifestyle, Assyria's values, the nations around them in order to keep peace with them. They were were okay living with that amongst them. They were okay with calling evil good and good evil. Do you think that God's attitude has changed towards that when God's people are silent about what is evil. We see how this worked for Judah. The woes continue. Verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. They're self-sufficient. They're smarter than God. They are proud and they're arrogant. That's another wolf fruit. Verse 22, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink. Again, more of the same. Verse 23, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. No care for justice or what is true. Injustice and truth manifest the the presence of God when we can have this among men. But when we can't have this, when the guilty are acquitted for a bribe and there is no justice, that's a wolf fruit. It calls for God's judgment. And it reminds me in reading these six woes that we have before us in Isaiah 5 of one of the woes that Jesus delivered in his earthly ministry. In Matthew 23, he said it this way, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. We move in the passage to a capturing point, a universal or 
you might say, timeless principle again revealed in verse 13 down to verse 17 in particular, and then the last verses. And the principle is this. We see it repeated throughout Isaiah and throughout Scripture. Rebellious man ultimately always will be humbled. In every nation, among every people group, everywhere, when we're rebellious, when we're proud and arrogant against God, when we act as practical atheists, we become humiliated at some point. Inevitable. Will happen. If not in this short life, for sure in the next. Rebellious man will be humbled. God will be exalted. Verse 13. Because of the wolf fruit, therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. This had its fulfillment in uh, many of their lifetime, within a hundred years of this time, uh, the southern kingdom is also exiled into Assyria, which becomes uh, Babylon and Persia. It doesn't matter what nation it is. They're just an instrument in God's hand of discipline. But they go into exile for lack of knowledge, which we know, as we read the passage in its entirety, has to do with God's law and his commandments his word going forth, and they're despising and disregarding this. Their lack of proper perspective on what is true had developed over time, over the centuries, and they had come to this place of judgment. And there will be poverty, and there will be hunger, and there will be thirst among them as a result. And what a picture. Verse 13 talks about them going hungry and thirsty, but look at what gets hungrier. Verse 14. Therefore Sheol, which is a word for the grave, Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite. So you may be hungry and thirsty, but guess what's getting hungrier? Death, the grave. And it opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. There would be a humbling of the most esteemed people. And there's an irony between these verses when you see that hunger that man has with no satisfaction, but the hunger of the grave that swallow up, swallows up many. I think of all the relevant, timeless, repeated themes in the Bible. Verse 15 and verse 16 contain one of the most important. Man is humbled, and the Lord will be exalted. Look at verse 15 and 16 in that light again. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. You know, it's not that we are so much lower than God that makes us humble before God. That is humbling. But it's more than that. It's that we don't manifest the righteousness of God that he calls us to. That's what brings out this humbling. Man created in the image of God, apart from grace, cannot show God's glory, and that's a humiliating thing for mankind to live with and be like. Oswald, who writes a tremendous commentary on this book, says, and listen closely, it is not our limited intelligence, limited power, or limited lifespan that drags us down to humiliation before God. It is our inability to love justice and to do rightly that makes a mockery of all our pretensions to have ultimate meaning in ourselves. In other words, for man to be proud of himself when he is unable to be just, when he's unable to be righteous, it's, it's foolhardy 
It's humiliating that we would think we could do these things apart from the grace of God. You see, the deeper Israel goes in this picture, the more we understand we have no hope and no help apart from God giving it. God not only is required to place us in fertile land, to cultivate, to protect, to develop, he has to bring the fruit too. So there's no room for the glory of man. And ultimately this will be seen when Messiah comes. But we have to be brought to despair. We have to be brought to distress. We have to try to linger in darkness before we can recognize how much we need Messiah. And the people of God here were brought to this place so they would long for Messiah, their only real hope. And we read this today of our counterparts so that we would long for Messiah. It's not the lesson of the text for you to see how they failed and say, you know what, we could do better. If we do, it's because the Spirit of God has been given to us by the grace of God, and he gives us obedience. And that should keep us just as humble. Otherwise, it's all wolf fruit for every one of us. God's judgment brings a humbling. Verse 17 says, Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich, which was once cultivated and owned and cherished. Now lambs just graze freely on it, and nomads can eat the ruins of the rich. If you skip down to verse 24, you see a very telling passage about the humbling of God over proud man. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. No more fruitfulness, no more prosperity, no more sense of what they have accomplished. It'll all be brought low. In these last two verses of or verse, two sentences of verse 24 tell it all. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. If you want to know the root of Israel's problem here, if you want to know the root of mankind's problem, they've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel because they know better. Despising God's word puts the people in a place of no hope or rehabilitation. Without the word, there's no mechanism for the heart to be changed and lives to be altered. Uh, the despising of the word of God put them to a point of no return as it relates to God's impending judgment. In the final verse, starting in the final section, in the, starting in verse 25, we see how God would bring final discipline to Israel. Look at verse 25. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people... And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. Now it so happens that we have seen through archaeology and history that there were a series of earthquakes that happened during the reigns of these last kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and King Uzziah, who was the king now. There are actual digs, archaeological digs, that show how these massive earthquakes hit during this time. Not uncommon in that part of the world. And the way they built their structures, they could go from riches to rags very fast with a simple earthquake. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Look at verse 26 as he continues to forecast what will happen to Judah in time. 
He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. So the nations will notice the weakness of Israel and they'll descend upon them quickly. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. This is a picture of the foreign oppressors that God will use as discipline against these rebellious sinners known as God's people, Israel. It was Assyria in Isaiah's day. It becomes Babylon in later times, Persia, the Greeks, the Romans, doesn't matter who. God uses instruments of judgment upon rebellion in various ways in various times according to his will. And Oswald says well that the nations are but an instrument in the Lord's hands. The great imperial armies sweeping the world in the 9th to the 5th centuries B.C. were not the shapers of the world's destiny, but were themselves shaped by the one who holds all things. Let's just draw this fast but important application. God commonly throughout history has used foreign oppression to bring judgment to rebellion. Verse 29, their roaring is like a lion. Their young lions, they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. It's a picture of, of the nation of Assyria coming upon, eventually it was Babylon as it transferred to Babylon. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, this is what they'll see. Verse 30 says, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. As chapter 5 closes, the picture could not be darker or more distressful. The lavish grace of God was rejected by his people, and they were paying the price for it. Utter devastation was the forecast. Total humiliation was the outlook. God's promise was judgment and his brooding presence darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. And just when you would think it could get no darker, what happens? Uzziah, the king, dies. The man who is most able to make these treaties the people were depending upon. The man most able to present some security to them. After God forecast this, King Uzziah dies. No security left for the people of God now. Where could they turn? Their prosperity, their comfort, their independence, their sense of stability, all stripped away. Alec Moyer said, When the Lord has done all, must the darkness of divine wrath close in and the light flicker and fade? This was the day of crisis in which Isaiah ministered. A crisis for humankind, for the day of the wrath had come. Can mercy be exhausted and defeated? That's a good question if we were to stop at chapter 5. What hope is there for mankind? If God pours out his grace as he did for Israel, yet they yielded wolf grapes, what hope is there for any of us? If their response to God's deliverance, his favor, his loving kindness, and his grace is sinful rebellion, what hope is there? How are we different? As Isaiah unfolds, there is only one light that can pierce the darkness brought about by sinful rebellion against God. 
So today we will close with how chapter 6 begins. Isaiah, from the distress and darkness of the vision that he was given, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Let's pray. Father, this fifth chapter of Isaiah evokes a deep sense 